Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. I'm Eileen, and joining me as always is Colleen. How are you doing, Colleen? I'm good. I'm excited about this week's episode because yeah. it's been in the works for a while, and it's a case that we, you know, surprise, surprise, feel very strongly about. So uh, how are you? I'm great. Yeah, this case is crazy. It's sad. It's infuriating. And it has been in the works for a while, and I am glad we're telling Dusty's story uh, for his family and his supporters. So it's going to be a longer one, but that's because there, there's a lot to say. So let's get into today's case. Dusty Turner has been incarcerated for over 20 years for the 1995 murder of a woman named Jennifer Evans. At the time, Dusty had just completed his Navy SEAL tactical training in Virginia. He was out at a bar with some friends in Virginia Beach, including his roommate and swim buddy, Billy Brown. We had the opportunity to talk to some of the people involved in trying to get justice for Dusty, including his mother. Dusty had been hanging out with Jennifer, who he met at the bar in the early morning hours of June 17, 1995. The two were talking in Dusty's car when Brown, who had been drinking all night, stumbled into the car. After a short exchange between Jennifer and Brown, Brown suddenly lunged at Jennifer and put her in a fatal chokehold. Dusty tried to loosen his grip, but it was too late. Realizing that she was dead, Dusty panicked and his SEAL training kicked in. Following the rule to always have your swim buddies back, Dusty helped hide Jennifer's body in a wooded area off the highway. But just eight days later, Dusty came forward to his commanding officer. Dusty believed that he and Billy Brown would be subject to due process. After all, Dusty had participated in the cover-up of a crime. However, due to a combination of false testimony and investigator error, Dusty was sentenced to 82 years in prison for the charges of first-degree murder and abduction. So how did this good kid from a good family who was well on his way to becoming one of the youngest Navy SEALs to graduate from training end up in prison for over 80 years? Dustin Allen Turner was born in February of 1975. As a child, he was full of nonstop energy from a young age. He did everything early. His mom, Linda, said he was sitting up at two months, crawling at six, and walking at eight and a half months. Everything he did, he did to keep up with his big brother, Matt. When Matt went to school, Dusty couldn't wait to start school as well. When Matt came home to do his homework, Dusty would sit at the table with him with crayons and paper and pretend to do homework, too. His parents divorced when he was very young, and his mother remarried. He gained a stepsister and eventually two younger brothers. His mom still lives in the house that he was raised in, and his extended family was very close-knit. Dusty also excelled in school. He got good grades. He made friends easily. He was involved in multiple sports. He was also a junior deacon at his family's church, and he was a Boy Scout. Linda soon met her second husband, Larry, when Dusty was two. Larry had a daughter from a previous marriage, and then after Linda and Larry married, they had two more sons, bringing the total number of kids to five. They lived a picturesque American life. He always knew Larry as his father, and we had a um, 
little family like the, uh, I want to say Adam's family, but that's not right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, his, mine, and our children, and it worked out fine. So Dusty was uh, right in the middle. He had two older siblings and two younger. And um, so there was a lot of family stability on both sides, and he enjoyed having his cousins and his family all around. And um, we did do a lot with our families, and he always had, like I said, the siblings, cousins, aunts, uncles, grandparents. They all loved him and all of us and took care of him. And I think that's really important to have other family members involved in raising a child. Yeah. So it um, just gave him a lot more personality, really. he picked mm-hmm. up on everybody's. <laughs> but we moved into the house and that I'm actually still living in when he was four years old. And by then, I, well, my husband and I had another child, another boy, and another one was on the way, which was a surprise to all of us. But <laughs> <laughs> So he grew up in a home of um, love and also a lot of responsibility with that many people mm-hmm. because everybody has to share in the, um, with all of it. Yeah, but, definitely. Yeah, so... He, but we were all active, and he was active um, at school and and then also in church, and he loved scouting. Um, he loved all the hunting and fishing and all the typical boy things, you know. Came home with worms in his pockets and oh. uh, the whole thing. I'd be out there doing the laundry, and I'd smell this ungodly smell, and oh, <laughs> oh no, all, all the boys would have pockets full of worms. It was ugh. But uh, anyway, he had lots of friends, and he was really active. Um, my husband was a big hunter, big fisherman, and uh, so it kind of went down to the boys. And um, Dusty wasn't much of a hunter, but he loved fishing. And um, he loved spending time, you know, with our family. We had a little boat, and the kids loved fishing and just spending time there. We didn't have a lot of money, so... Actually, that was a perfect thing to do with boys, mm-hmm. and not because they just thought it was the best thing in the world. But as far as his uh, sports, he participated in uh, cross country and track, and baseball and basketball, football and swimming. And uh, fortunately for our sons, Larry coached all of them in little league, uh, well for 17 years. And he also coached basketball, so the oh, kids wow. were really active. Yeah. So we had a, a very active sports family, and um, they. we also had a swimming pool, and the boys all loved swimming, and Dusty excelled in swimming, actually. And so as a junior and senior, he concentrated only on the baseball and swimming. Um, you had to stop you know, doing so many things, you got to concentrate on one so, because it's just too much. Because he was also working. He always worked somewhere. Um, he worked as um, um, in the ice cream place, and he worked um, helping. I, I worked for a Mayflower moving company. He helped move things and just different activity, different kinds of jobs like that. So, But during the swim uh, the whole swimming event, his swim team were excellent. I mean, they just excelled, and 
they in high school he so the team went to a semi and and the finals and uh, that was so much fun we we got to travel all over the state of indiana and when we went to the finals so um it was so exciting i'll never forget it <laughs> the kids received all kinds of awards um and his high school did a great job. We have all that on film, and we have them all standing there, getting their little, their ribbons put on them, and as they call their names, it's. I can't really watch it now. It tears me up. <laughs> so he was a pretty normal boy, though, growing up. Um, Dusty was a popular kid. He was handsome, nice, always willing to help, and people just liked being around him. Men in his family had served going back as far as he could remember, so it came as no shock to his family when he wanted to join the armed forces as well. When he was a sophomore, he met a Navy recruiter and enrolled in the Navy Delayed Entry Program. When he enlisted after high school, participation in this program would allow him to enter the Navy at a higher rank. In 1993, he left for boot camp two weeks after he walked in his high school graduation. He had been researching the Navy SEAL program and intended to join. Yeah, and speaking of the Navy, when you said until he went to the Navy, well, he when he was young, he liked doing things like scouting and being with groups of, of uh, you know, people that did things that learned. And he had heard, I don't know if really if a, a um, recruiter came to the school or how he got involved in this early uh, Navy entrance, but he came home one day and he said that he wanted to join this group that would be an early entry into the Navy. And I was, he was like 16. And I said, no, you know, I don't, that's, you're way too young to even think about that. And he says, mom, I know what I want to do. And, and, you know, all my dad, my stepdad, my, uh, all your uncles, everybody's in the service. Well, they were my brothers. So he came from a military background. So I, he eventually talked me into letting him join this group, and he would go over. It was close to the fairgrounds, and I think it was just once a week, and they basically just did um, a lot of, what's the word, calisthenics. Uh, they worked out, the, and then they also had some kind of manual where they had to um, do some studying. But mainly it was to get them in shape. Mm-hmm. Well, in my mind, I didn't really realize that that was actually and truly really to get him to the Navy as soon as he graduated from school. <laughs> oh, so, I see. I, yeah. And I was not ready for that. Yeah. So when they, um, right after his senior year, right in just like two, not even two weeks, probably 10 days, they called or got in touch with him and told him it was time to come up for his physical and uh, I said, no, you know, no, no uh, you got to wait till the summer's over. <laughs> I can't wait, Mom. You have to do what the Navy tells you to do. So he went right in after high school. That broke my heart because we had big plans for Larry was still coaching, and he was planning on mm-hmm. Dusty was going to be on the big travel, the travel team that summer. Uh-huh. So that's up until the point when he did go into the Navy. And uh, he seemed to know from pretty early on that that's what he wanted to do, right? Yeah, he did. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is awesome. His older brother was in the Navy at the time, also. Oh, really? And oh, cool. Then I had an uncle that had uh, been in the Navy. I had an uncle that was 
uh, a green beret and oh, oh uh, wow, green, yeah. And then my two brothers were paratroopers and uh, one hundred one. I think that's the troop. They were in the army. Mm-hmm. And then Dustin's father and stepfather both were in Vietnam and uh, in the army. So long line of military, yeah. Yeah, it was. It is, but it did break after Dusty. It stopped because my two younger sons couldn't handle it. By the time Dusty got to boot camp, it was too late for him to join the SEALs that year, so he enrolled in the diver trainee program when he arrived and participated in the dive fair boot camp class. Many of the other enrollees in this program had the hopes of becoming SEALs as well. Dusty hadn't ever been one not to go for what he wanted, so he managed to sneak himself into the line of men taking the SEAL qualifying test. At the end of the grueling exam, and that's really just a taste of what's to come in training, Dusty was one of only five people who passed. The officer overseeing the exam was impressed with Dusty. However, once he figured out he wasn't even supposed to be there, he got annoyed. But it was hard not to be impressed with Dusty's unconventional initiative. Plus, he passed the test. And ultimately, he was given permission to switch to the SEAL program and became one of the youngest people ever to enroll. For those of you not familiar with the SEAL program, SEAL stands for Sea, Air, and Land. They are a highly trained special operations group that are trained to operate in all environments. The training they undergo is extensive and grueling. Only a small percentage of people actually pass training. They're trained to carry out the highest level of operations, many of which are secret. Recently, you may have heard of SEAL Team 6 the team that carried out the Operation Neptune Spear that ended with the death of Osama bin Laden. Normally, operations that SEALs do aren't made public, but Operation Neptune Spear was an exception because of the high-profile target. This is a type of special ops Navy SEALs do. Dusty was the first in his boot camp to qualify for SEAL training, and he called it the most difficult physical challenge he had ever been through. After boot camp, he went to BUDS training in San Diego. BUDS is Basic Underwater Demolition SEAL Training. (laughs) He started BUDS in February of 1994. Because of the intense training, injuries are not uncommon. Dusty had several injuries, which caused delay in completing his training. He was actually pulled during Hell Week with a collapsed lung and two stress fractures in his legs. And he had to withdraw from the class he started with and finish with another class. He was one of 19 people to graduate in December of 1994. After completing his other training, Dusty reported for duty at AP Hill in Virginia in February of 1995 and expected to deploy that August. While recovering from his training, he met fellow SEAL trainee Billy Brown, and they ended up training together for about a year and a half and became swim buddies, which is basically the person that you train with and SEALs are taught when you're out on a mission, you're never to be more than six feet away from your swim buddy. After graduating, they ended up in the same platoon waiting for deployment, and the two were friendly and planned to move into an apartment together. To call Billy Brown an interesting character is a nice way to put it. About 30 seconds into reading about his background, you would have to wonder how this dude got into the military, let alone the SEAL program. Brown had an unstable upbringing. By the time he was a young adult, he had garnered a reputation for being a hot-tempered, rude, and violent person, he married very young to a teenager and was charged with assaulting her when she was 14 years old in front of a police officer. Another person who trained with Brown and Dusty retold a story Brown told him where Brown beat up someone who he thought was interested in his wife, 
He said he beat him so bad for so long, and according to Brown, he was, quote, begging me to stop, and then he was begging God for it to stop. So, yeah, this is not the kind of person you want to, you want to get some of the most specialized training the military has to offer, I would think, anyway. He also had a mean drinking problem. By his own account, he would drink a case of beer and a fifth of 151. Brown drank so much, multiple people commented on the fact that it was kind of amazing he managed to get through SEAL training at all. He was known to party all night and to get up and go to training. People who were in training with him said he was a complete disaster when he drank and that he would just turn into a different person. Previous to Brown joining the Navy, he had been dishonorably discharged from the Coast Guard for hitting an officer. So how did a basically a high-functioning, violent alcoholic who had been dishonorably discharged from another branch of the military end up in the SEALs? And the short, simple answer is basically clerical oversight. Oh, just slipped through the cracks, I guess. I mean, really, though? Yeah, I don't don't think this guy should have ever been anywhere near the military. No. The night of June 17th, 1995, was a Saturday. Dusty and Brown were enjoying their waiting period before deployment, and Dusty and some of his friends had gone out to a bar to hang out. Billy Brown was shit-faced, to put it mildly. Dusty said that night he saw Billy slumped against the bar several times and that he was actually having trouble standing up and walking. Dusty let him do his own thing and chatted with the people that he knew who were at the bar. And Jennifer Evans was a 21-year-old woman who was also hanging out at the bar with her friends. She was there on a mini vacation from Georgia where she was a pre-med student. And she walked up to Dusty to introduce herself. They ended up hitting it off and they talked and hung out the whole night. When Jennifer's friends came to get her because they wanted to leave, she was reluctant to go. She was getting into her friend's car and Dusty and Jennifer exchanged phone numbers Jennifer managed to convince her friends to give her another hour or so uh, and then come back for her so she could hang out with Dusty a little bit longer, and then they agreed. Dusty tried to get Brown a ride home because at this point he was drunk beyond the point of being coherent. Brown's ex-girlfriend was at the bar, and Dusty asked her to give him a ride home, but Brown refused to go with her. Since Dusty was planning on staying with Jennifer at the bar a little longer, Dusty and Jennifer decided to go out to Dusty's car to talk. At this point, Jennifer's friends were due to be back in about 20 minutes. They were in his geostorm when they saw Billy stumbling towards them, to which Dusty commented, here comes trouble. He told Jennifer to ignore him because he could be a jerk when he was drunk. When he finally got to the car, he crawled into the back seat, cursing at Dusty for trying to leave him behind at the bar. He got behind Jennifer and asked her if she was a virgin and made several unwanted sexual remarks towards her. Dusty asked again if Brown wanted to get a ride back with his ex, but he replied in a very mature and respectful way, saying, that bitch can fuck off. Dusty, trying to defuse the situation, told him he needed to chill out or leave. So, a Geostorm is a compact sports car that was manufactured in the early 90s. It's a four-seater, but it only has two doors, and due to the slope of the roof, that a taller person would have to lean forward towards the front of the seat to fit. Brown was 6'3", so fitting in the back seat was a struggle for him. Brown was leaning forward, still trying to talk to Jennifer, and started playing with her hair. Now, she'd been blowing off his gross comments, but when he touched her, she slapped his hand away. And this is when Brown snapped. He says he doesn't remember what happened next, but what he did was he lunged at her and put her in a chokehold and snapped her neck. By the time he realized what he was doing, he realized that he was leaned over the front seat with his arms around Jennifer's neck. Dusty tried to pull his arms off of her and was screaming at him to let her go, but it was too late. Jennifer was dead. Dusty was sitting there kind of in a daze, but was brought back to reality by the screaming of Brown telling him to start driving. 
So he just witnessed a murder and now his swim buddy, who he'd been conditioned to be there for no matter what, is telling him to drive. And so his military training kicked in and he started driving. They drove out to a stretch of highway and concealed her body and went home. On the drive back, Brown remarked that they were in it together now. And, I mean, what do you do? You're 20. You witness a murder. And you're kind of conditioned to help this guy. So you're dropped into this incredibly stressful situation that Mm -hmm. you're not expecting. And you've just gotten through a training where they're going to drop you into stressful situations. And you have to default back to this. Yeah. What you've been taught. It's human nature to just fall back on your basic training whatever that is right you know or you feel fall back on what you know and what dusty knew was training mm-hmm. so uh, yeah what would you do I, uh, I know how i would want to react yeah but what you how you react is completely different you know yeah, i it can be completely i i don't think people like to admit that but you know i wouldn't say who's to say that i wouldn't do the same thing if you or emily or nicole snap somebody's neck in front of me or I, I might be just like, okay, I'm going to drive, okay? Like, because you just witnessed something insanely horrible and then somebody yelling at you to do this thing and this is person you care about, right? And this like, person that you think you know well just did something very probably mm-hmm. out of character. And now they've become like this really scary person, right? Like, and they're like, exactly. all right, we need to drive. Mm-hmm. And so you're like, you don't haven't had time to process the situation yet and you have to react. So you drive. I understand his reaction, I Me guess too. is what I'm saying. Yeah. In the meantime, the Virginia Beach area became a media circus. A tourist going missing was a huge deal, and Jennifer was a young, beautiful college student who was on vacation with her friends. Virginia Beach relies on its tourism industry, and a missing co-ed was bad for business. Her parents gave multiple interviews to the press and begged her captor to let her go, and they said they remained hopeful that she could be found alive. So Dusty sat on this information for a couple days, not sure what to do. The pressure was mounting, the story was all over the news, and Jennifer's friends had told the police she had been last seen with Dusty. He finally decided to come forward after about a week and talk to his CO and ask what to do. They told him to cooperate with the authorities, and he did. He trusted that if he told the truth, the court system would work and he would pay his debt to society for his part as an accessory after the fact. Unfortunately, this isn't what happened. Dusty told the truth to the authorities... He directed them to Jennifer's body. This led to the arrest of Billy Brown, but also led to Dusty's arrest as well. How did you find out about Dusty's involvement in what had happened? And were you told before he was arrested or did he get arrested? And then that's how you found out. No, I wasn't told beforehand. And how I found out was uh, actually Dusty had been calling me if... You know, looking back at how things proceeded and knowing what happened now, there was clues, and I should have known, but I didn't because I was very uh, busy with my kids. So every time he called and he was telling me things, I just wasn't listening. And uh, so what happened, though, was the night he called me, uh, he'd been gone for a while. He was there, but he was in Bowling Green, Virginia, and that's where the Sill Turning Center was. And uh, he started his usual chatter with me, just saying, hi, Mom, you know, what, what's up? But he just never, he did, just didn't sound like himself. And you know how you are, if you're a mother, your maternal instinct stinks, kicks in, and you, you kind of know something's not right. And I said, hi, honey, what's, what's going on? Are you okay? Something wrong? And he said, I, I have something off, you know, that I have to tell you. And I was just listening, 
my heart was beating <laughs> too fast. And he said, I, I, I've witnessed a murder. And I, you know, I just stunned. I said, you what? He said, Mom, I've witnessed a murder. So that was how, the, how I found out. And I was just immediately upset and questioning him, saying, you know, who, who was it? Who, who, did, who got murdered and who did it? Was it one of your buddies? And, you know, I was just stuttering. When did it happen? Where did it happen? Are you okay? And he finally said, um, it was a civilian mom. It was a young lady. And then I was just like, oh, my God, Dusty, are you okay? I mean, how did that happen? And basically, I just wanted the details right away. I, I wanted to be reassured that he was okay. And he said, Mom, I can't tell you everything right now because one of my friends was involved. And, yes, I'm okay. And I'm here on base, and I'm with my chief warrant. And that was Officer uh, Jeffrey O'Connick. So I immediately wanted to know everything, and I and I, I said, "Who, who, who, Dusty? Who was it? Was it Sean?" I knew the guys that was in his unit because I had met them all, and they'd been here to my house. Uh, Sean Rosario, Ron Mars, all these guys—not all of them had been here, but his best buddies were here: Billy Brown, and uh, there was another one, but. And he kept saying, "No, no, it wasn't. It wasn't them." And I said, "Well, who was it then? Was it that?" Then I said, "That damn Billy Brown. Wasn't it, it? Was him? Wasn't it?" And he didn't answer me. So I said, "Let me speak to your warrant officer right now." So he did put uh, Chief Warrant Officer on the phone, and I spoke to him. And as I spoke to him, um, and later the senior uh, senior chief and later Dusty's commanding officer, they all told me the same thing, that everything was going to be okay, they had the person that was guilty, and that Dusty had witnessed a murder, and that the police officer wanted him, officers wanted him to basically uh, relay the information about how it happened so that they could arrest and, you know, get the person that was responsible. So, and they, they informed me that the detectives had arrested the person who was responsible. And I didn't know, they wouldn't tell me it was Billy Brown, but I learned later that's who it was. And that the investigator had said it had been going on for days. So when I learned that over the day, I kept calling back and forth, you know, and they they would talk to me. And, I mean, this wasn't within days. It was just like within a day or two. But um, So I called Dustin's father, Arch, and we kept talking back and forth, and he would call Little Creek, and I'd call, and, and he kept receiving the same answers that I did. And so then he also found out that Dusty was going to talk to an attorney. Oh, let me back up and tell you one thing. I don't know if I mentioned this or not. When they got Dusty and they brought him in for questioning, they asked him, uh, they started questioning him, he asked them, do I need an attorney present? Do I, can I speak to my chief warrant officer? And they said, oh, you don't, you don't need anyone like that. <sighs> 
So that's what they told him. But anyway, that night, when that was going on, they called, uh, well, the attorney. So we all talked. We talked to Dusty, and we didn't get to talk to Dusty. We told those men, his his warrant officer and um, those, you know, whoever they were, the commanding officer, that Dusty was to speak to this attorney. And I, I don't know if Arch found him. I think he did. His name was Michael Ash. And so we knew that Dustin was going to go to see him the next day, but we never did get to speak to the Michael Ash the next day because Dusty was arrested on his way out the door when he was going to go meet with the attorney. And so before he was arrested, though, and just on all our questioning, when the detectives had questioned him, that was specifically he said, do I need to speak to an attorney, you know, within the naval offices, the officers, because he said, do I need to talk to a JAG, a JAG officer, and they told him no. So, and you know, there's nothing we can do to back up and arrest them or to hold them liable for what they did. But anyway, that was um, really hard. So I didn't know that he had been arrested. And after hours, I finally got a, a call from Arch, and he was stuttering. He didn't want to tell me, and he was, you know, Linda, Dusty, he's been arrested. And I really couldn't understand him and he, because he was stuttering and straining to say his words, and also I didn't want to understand him. So, and then he said, Dusty's been arrested, and he will be charged with murder. And I was just—I was on the floor, actually. I said, "No, that's not true." And I said, "You know, the officers told me they, that can't happen. He's with them, and they're taking care of him." So. Brown was extremely upset that Dusty went to the authorities. He saw these actions as a betrayal of their friendship, and even though Dusty was forthcoming with his story, you know, he told the truth, and he told a consistent story. Brown deviated from that and told a very different story. In fact, he told more than one story. The investigation and questioning of Billy Brown is extensive and there's several hours of interrogation and the story Brown tells gets more bizarre. Um, We're going to read to you from the interrogation transcript of what Brown says happened. And just a quick warning, the descriptions are graphic and a little disturbing. So here's his first version. I walked to try and find Dusty I saw him and he said, get in the car and let's go. The girl was passed out in the back and we drove to the side street in Virginia Beach and parked. We were touching her and she woke up and started screaming. Dusty tried to quiet her by putting his hands over her mouth. So she started kicking. I laid my body over her legs and grabbed her arms and Dusty started choking her. She stopped moving. So we let go of her and then she started spitting up some blood and Dusty started choking her again. I grabbed her arms and her legs Then we drove for a while and I woke up and we had stopped. Dusty and I pulled the girl out of the car and I left her body in the woods and we started driving home. I fell asleep and then I woke up and we went back to the barracks. He also drew a diagram that supposedly depicted how they were positioned in the car during the attack. It showed Jennifer lying in the middle between the two seats and both guys on either side of her. 
Like we said, the geostorms are really small. Someone over 5'6 would have a hard time sitting in the back bench. There's not a ton of leg room, and the car itself is only 67 inches wide. The space between the two front seats in a geostorm is only 7 inches, with these being the measurements of the car and factoring in that Dusty and Brown are both 6'3 muscular Navy SEALs, so they're not small guys. In fact, experts have looked at the dimensions of the car to try to verify Brown's story and said it would not be possible. So, at a minimum, the part of Brown's story about being in the car is not true because it's physically impossible. A couple hours after the first story, Brown contacted the investigator because he wanted to make some changes to his statement. He said that in his first statement, he was covering for Dusty because, quote, he didn't want to make it look like Dusty cold out killed her. So here's the transcript of his second statement. It's a little bit longer. He goes, I left the bar and I walked across the parking lot looking for Dusty's car. I saw the car and walked in that direction. I was on the grass about 10 or 15 feet away. 15 feet from the car, I saw Dusty and saw somebody else in the back seat. Dusty opened the door and got out and I yelled at him. He said, hurry, dude, and get in the car. I got in the car and it was already started. I got in and the car was already started. And when I locked it and looked back, Dusty said, dude, I think I fucking killed her. I never said a word. She had blood, blood running out of her nose and foam coming out of her mouth. Then I said, shit, dude, drive now. And Dusty said, quote, let's take her to the beach. We'll rape her and dump her body in the ocean and they'll think that she drowned. So I let my seat back and I started to fondle her. Her shirt was open and her shorts had been pulled open and Dusty told me to stop touching her because police could tell if anyone had touched her. Then we drove on 64 towards an exit and drove down a dirt road and pulled off. We stopped and got out and drug the girl away from the car, put some leaves on top of her and left. We drove home, stopped to eat, and when we got back right outside of the gate, the next day we went for a drive and talked and he told me that at first he was going to have sex with the girl and then at first she was willing. He told me that he pulled up her shirt and ripped the button off of her shorts and she said stop and tried to sit up. He said he put his forearm on her throat and pushed back. She started fighting him. He said he started pushing her harder, and the next thing he knew, she was foaming out of her mouth and her nose was bleeding. He got scared and jumped out of the car, and that's when I yelled to him. This was the first time we talked about what had happened that night. He said we needed to get our story straight for the police. He asked me to say that we left together from the bar and that we said goodbye to her and left. I told him I would say whatever he wanted, and we arranged the story. Dusty has been my swim buddy all through Buds, and I would do anything to protect him. I lied for him because he asked me and I love him like a brother. I only wanted to protect him. I'm sorry I lied several times to the police. I only said what I hoped would help Dusty. I'm sorry and I won't lie anymore. The truth must come out. I wish we would have left and that I would not have been involved. All I can say is that I love my friend and I wanted to help him. Our training has brought us very close. I know I did wrong and I'm sorry. The investigator goes on to ask Brown if he was being truthful and accurate and Brown said yes. When the police told him what Dusty was saying about how they were hanging out in the car and then Brown came over very drunk and strangled her, Brown steadfastly denied this and called it, in his words, bullshit. So the contradictions in Billy's statement are glaring, I think. Mm -hmm. You know, he knows that they're in police custody because Dusty talked. So now he's trying to cover his own ass and he's telling a vastly different story than Dusty. But I have a couple problems with his statements because first... Dusty supposedly wants to take her and rape her and dump her at the beach, which is just completely awful. But then just a couple minutes later, supposedly Dusty stops Billy from fondling her because he's afraid of leaving evidence for the police to find. 
So that's the first thing that I think is weird. I mean, how would taking her to the beach and assaulting her after she's already been dead? Yeah. Not going to leave evidence. Also, there's the fact that Billy was known by multiple people at the bar to be just completely drunk, leaning up against the bar. He couldn't stand. So does he all of a sudden sober up and is able to remember these details clearly or what? I mean, that would be a question that I would have if I were an investigator. Also... If Dusty planned on kidnapping this girl, why did he spend all this time with her friends, give him the number, and plan for them to pick her up at the set time, and then decide, oh, we're going to go actually take her? And I know it's horrible, to, but that's what they're saying. He's saying that they did. Oh, I'm going to take her and rape her and dump her. And I, I just, it just doesn't add up, I think. And I would think, as an investigator, too, it just doesn't, doesn't add up. I mean, the friends obviously said, oh, yeah, she was with Dusty, and they probably heard from the friends that they're going to be meeting them back in 20 minutes. So it just, Seems like a very poorly executed plan. If it was a planned kidnapping, that's the worst planned kidnapping ever. Yeah, and these two are SEALs. You'd think they'd come up with something a little better, right? I mean, and then the issue of changing the story, that should have blown his credibility, especially when you have Dusty in the other room telling a far more plausible story that just remained consistent. So the details of, you know, what Billy Brown, how Billy Brown said that they were in the car strangling her or whatever that didn't add up at all so then he changes the story to this other story where jennifer's already dead yeah and it's like did he know that it wouldn't have added up that they would not have both fit in that car or what you know Mm -hmm. there's a lot of questions that i think weren't being asked about his statement when the media got a hold of the story the truth didn't matter the press ran with the story of two navy seals kidnapping assaulting accidentally killing then dumping a young college girl The narrative became a story of an arrangement Dusty and Brown had to lure girls in for group sex. Dusty was the good-looking one, and Brown was the muscle. They didn't mean for it to get out of hand, but it did, so they tried to cover their tracks and protect each other. It became Dusty's story against Brown's. During the trial, the prosecution painted a picture that took Brown's story as fact, which further fueled the media frenzy. The issue of the geostorm not being big enough for the events to go down the way Brown described were not refuted or tested by either side of the aisle. While the case may have not riveted the entire country the way the OJ trial did, a local person said that this trial was like their OJ trial. Dusty was ultimately charged with abduction and murder of Jennifer Evans. Brown faced the same charges in a separate trial. The prosecution rode the media frenzy and painted a picture of two, you know, not quite Navy SEALs who planned to scope out girls for group sex and that they're deviant behavior got out of hand and Jennifer lost her life. Instead of coming forward, they hid her body and tried to go back to their lives as SEALs. During the trial, Dusty's family hired a prominent criminal defense attorney named Dick Bridges and paid a heavy price for his services. During the trial, Linda said she would bring up different points she wanted him to hit on during trial, and Bridges reassured her that it would be fine and that everything would work out. Unfortunately, everything did not work out for Dusty, and he was found guilty of both kidnapping and murder. He was sentenced to 42 years for murder and 40 for abduction. While Dusty received a total of 82 years, Billy Brown received 72. Virginia does not have parole, so this means that the two men essentially received life sentences. And I, because Billy Brown's um, trial had just happened, and they were still, you know, people still wanted, they wanted both of them. You know, at Virginia Beach, they were in an uproar over the whole thing because these were Navy SEALs. And she was a young lady, you know, a precious young lady from Georgia. 
and she was a student. Uh, sorry. Uh, Kale, okay. I watched her funeral mm-hmm. on TV. Well, my husband and I were out there, and uh, it showed a, it, it was on TV all the time, all the time, and they showed her funeral. And uh, uh. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com. Oh my God, it was uh, he was trying to get me through the hotel out in the lobby so we could go get in the car. But I, when I saw what it was, I just stopped dead in my tracks and just stood there bald. And I thought, oh, how did this happen, Lord? Why didn't it happen? To, why couldn't you just take me instead of this precious young lady? That's the way I felt. It was so horrible, but. Anyway, um, so it goes back to the trial. I'm sorry. So I understand part of the reason that my attorneys were, everything was so taboo and they didn't want to do anything that discredited her or say anything bad in front of her parents. I mean, I can understand part of that, because, but yet my son's life was at stake, at stake here. So anyway, yeah, they would just say, well, we, we don't want to do anything to offend the girl's family. So they didn't. <laughs> and I just don't um, think it would have been terribly offensive. I mean, you're just no. basically, I mean, I, I get what being sensitive, but I mean, like you said, it's your son's life here and you're not shaming her in any way. But no. unfortunately, it's like it's, it's part of the story and yeah. you need to refute what they're saying. Right. Well, let me back up and tell you that... Um, Billy Brown had actually tried to have sex with her corpse. And Dustin had gone back to the car to um, retrieve a blanket, anything. He felt, he told me later, he told me all this on the first day that he felt so bad that what was going on, he was in shock still, but he knew he just couldn't go off and leave and just like that. So when he went back, he didn't see anything. And when he came back, Brown had her pants down and he was on top of her 
and he kicked him off, and that's the only time he touched him, and he said, get off of her, you SOB, what are you doing, or something, and, and he replied back, oh, well, I couldn't do it, have fun with her anyway, she's dead. Oh, my God, he's a sick... And I want to tell you, this is so horrible. I did not believe my son, because I thought, oh, my God, if you can say that, if you can say that somebody actually touched a dead person's body to have sex, then there's something not right here. That, that's what I thought. But Billy Brown admitted in his own trial that's, that he touched her, you know, several times while she was deceased. So that was the only time in my, in my whole, the whole time that I ever doubted my son. And it was only because I never thought that a person could could possibly do that yeah right right and i felt so bad so um let me go back and talk a little bit more about the trial um because the commonwealth admitted in a lot of times that that brown was the one who killed the victim i mean he they said this at the trial they said it in the media taped interviews and everywhere but the fact that our attorneys again they didn't ask for a change of venue they didn't have they didn't really have their witnesses ready and they didn't have character witnesses we could have had character witness we could have witnesses from right here that would have been glad to drove all day long whatever to be out there but they didn't ask for it because Dusty was a good looking one i guess uh anyway so they had there was this one young lady and she her name is Anitra and uh, oh my gosh uh, i met her at the jail actually because she was she was so torn up. She was friends with both Dustin and Billy, and she didn't know what to think, really. But um, she had been involved in the way that uh, the prosecuting attorneys went to her and asked her. They I mean, told her that she they wanted her as a witness, and they wanted her to basically say that that Dusty and Billy Brown had asked her to have group sex, and she's like. No, that's not true. They never did it. They never did that. Well, so they didn't ask her to come on. They didn't have her. She was a witness for us, basically. It was about some, it was, it was an unrelated thing. She never. She didn't do a good job. But our attorneys did not do a good job questioning her, because they were supposed to ask her about that incident, and they never did. And when I asked them about it, why, why didn't, you know, why couldn't you ask her about that incident? That's why she was here. And they would say, well, we couldn't do that. That would be leading her. So maybe they couldn't. I don't know, but they didn't. <laughs> I still feel like that's relevant information. That yeah. they, you're a lawyer. Figure it out. How to yeah. bring it up. That's your right. job. There was another witness on their side um, who was a, a Navy SEAL. And his name was Julio Fitzgibbons. And at the very beginning, when I first went out there, I was living, I mean, I was living in a hotel there, as close to the jail as I could get. And I would go and see my son, and we'd try to figure things out. And I actually became a detective, basically, because he had a lot of information to give me. And he would say, he said to me about Julio, even, he didn't know his name. He said, Mom, there's this um, Spanish kid I don't know his name, but he's he is a big kid. His name's or he's he's in SEAL Team, whatever it was for. If you could find him, he can he can help us because 
uh, I even asked him to take Billy Brown home. And I don't know, there was a whole bunch of different things. Uh, I went to the nightclub and I asked the waitresses and I asked people in there things about that night. And they were real uh, forthcoming with it. You know, what, they didn't mind at all telling me what happened because they were they wanted to tell me and they would say oh Billy Brown was this drunk and he was belligerent and and da 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 but within a couple of days I mean I wasn't taping any of it and I didn't know about affidavits because I was really naive about all that stuff so when I went back on like the third time they wouldn't even hardly look at me and they said we can't talk to you and I said why? And they said, yeah. And they said, um, our manager found out that you came in here and was talking to us. And they said, we cannot talk to you at all. Well, that happened with the SEAL team also. And especially with this young boy, Sean Rosario, who was Dusty's really good friend. He was he was so upset. And he called me a couple times here and crying. And I, he was like, I can't believe this has happened. I know Dusty would never do anything like that. And what can I do to help? And da da da. Well, time I got out there, and actually physically went to the SEAL team to get best and stuff and get it picked up. And con- and I wanted to contact Sean and, and whoever. He wouldn't even look at me, wouldn't talk to me, and told me he told me on the phone. And it was the last time he talked to me, he said, Linda, they came through the commanding officers and they lined us all up and they slammed the locker doors of Dusty and Billy, and they said, pointed to each one of us, and they said, these two Navy SEALs do not exist. They are dead. Do you get it? They're dead. Don't ever speak of them. And so they weren't allowed to talk to me, period. So, I mean, you know, later they did, a couple of them, but not Sean. I have lost track of him totally, but... So I, uh, during that whole trial, yeah, all those things that happened, I'm sorry. Uh, the, I just felt like the attorneys weren't prepared. They just, you know, um, Dick Bridges, I know that the, the girls, somebody had said, just wait. Um, wait till you see him given the closing arguments. You'll be so happy or something like this. But I, I would just wasn't prepared to, to see him not do the things that I thought he would do. His closing argument was really short. You know, he kept referring to Dusty's good looks and the fact that he came forward to take to the detectives to the body. And he proceeded on by flashing a picture of Billy Brown and saying, here's your killer. You know, this deprived, perverted, demonic person is your killer. And that's all he had was that picture of Billy Brown. So I was, you know, I was sitting at the edge of my seat, and I was gripping on the back of the bench, waiting for him to come on, keep saying something, make make them know the truth. Don't tell them what the detective said. You know, any come on, Dusty told the detectives that Brown killed her when all three of them were in, seated in the car and in, in Dusty's car, and that she was in the front and he was in the back, and how it happened. And I kept waiting for him to. He didn't. I was waiting for his closing statements, you know, to to make sure that he instilled this reasonable doubt that attorneys are supposed to do with their comments because he could have explained all those things that Dusty had told them and proof that Dustin was telling the truth. But 
there was something else later. They kept saying that uh, I don't know. They were after the charge. I kept thinking, how could they say that? There's no way that Dusty could have known what they were going to charge him with. You know, all he did was he told the simple truth. Period. And because of their charge later was a, 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 a abduction. So anyway, um, he didn't mention and those kind of things. And um, Brown's girlfriend, ex-girlfriend, Kristen Bishop, was, um, she actually was a witness for the prosecuting attorney, but, and she even told the truth there, and they didn't actually use, keep using it. Well, uh, Dustin and had been looking for a ride home for Brown that night. So, Kristen Bishop was there, and she was Billy Brown's ex-girlfriend, and he had asked her if she would take um, Billy home, and she said yes. So right there was a proof that he wasn't trying to abduct anybody. (laughs) And I was still waiting for Dick Bridges to say this, you know, bring this up, Um, but he didn't. So... What happened there was uh, Kristen Bishop and, and Billy Brown got in a little argument after Dusty was already out in the car with the girl, and he said uh, she wanted. She said to him, "I guess if you're thinking about having sex, forget it. We're not having sex tonight." And he got mad and shoved himself out the door and to the car. And, and anyway, that was that part. So I wanted Dick Bridges, please tell them all this stuff, and he didn't. And I was still waiting for all this great things to be revealed and, and on the closing statements. And he turned with a smile on his face and he walked over to me when he was finished. And I know he wanted me to acknowledge his performance and show my approval. But I was so hurt and so full of anxiety. And I, I, I knew, I mean, I could, I could read those jurors' minds, he just didn't give them the reasonable doubt. Dick Bridges immediately told Linda not to worry, that they would have this reversed on appeal. Dusty's defense filed multiple appeals, and they were all denied. Their last-ditch attempt was denied by the Virginia Supreme Court in June 2001. With the last petition denied, the only option left for Dusty's release was a pardon from the governor. Dusty has been incarcerated since 1995 in Virginia. His family still lives in Indiana. That means his family has to travel to see him. We asked Linda about what it's like to try to see Dusty on a regular basis. As it turns out, getting there sometimes is only half the battle. Those days of going up there and seeing him in the jail, I'll never forget him. I'll never forget why it tore my heart out. Yeah. Going up those stairs and then... They would take you away in 20 minutes. I mean, you'd be there for even less than 20 minutes. Drive 800 miles, yeah. you know, to be with your son, and you're all you're both hurting. You're all hurting, and oh, he would just—it was horrible. It was horrible. Sorry. That's yeah, awful. it was It was so awful. But we made it through. We're all stronger people today, <laughs> I guess. In May 2002, word was spreading that Brown was confessing to other inmates that he was solely responsible for Jennifer's murder and that he had lied in his statement to police and at trial. At this point, Billy had converted to Christianity and felt that in order to truly repent, he needed to confess his lies and ask for forgiveness. 
Linda hired an attorney and drove to Virginia to try and get the confession on tape. In August 2002, Brown confessed on a recording and corroborated Dusty's version of the events. Then in September, the transcript of the confession was completed. They began brainstorming on how to release the information to the public, and a reporter from the Virginia pilot named Bill Sizemore released the story in fall 2002. After Brown publicly confessed in late 2002 that he alone had murdered Jennifer and that Dusty had no part in it other than the actions afterward, Dusty filed for clemency from then-Governor Mark Warner. The clemency petition was denied based on the 21-day rule. The 21-day rule in Virginia says that trial judges aren't allowed to consider evidence that is presented more than 21 days after sentencing. It is designed to prevent appeals process from dragging on forever, but it has its unintended consequences. It's insane to me that this is even a rule. I don't know. <laughs> it, yeah, it's, it just seems like one of those things where it's like, okay, on the surface, yeah, let's not drag out the appeals sure. process. However, there are all these other repercussions that it has. And in like this case where, you know, the guy who actually did the crime is saying that he was right the whole time and you guys had it wrong. Well, we're, our hands are tied by this rule. Sorry. That's not and justice. Sit, and that's not justice. No. And it seems to be like, yeah, it's a way to not drag on the appeal process, but it also seems to be a way to limit overturning convictions. Sure. Yeah. Which probably is more to the point or what it seems to me anyway, which is again, not justice. Either it's way, not yeah, okay. it's not, it's not something that's in the interest of finding the truth of what happened. Exactly. In my opinion. Yeah. After that, a writ of actual innocence petition was filed. A writ of actual innocence is filed when evidence comes to light that the person did not commit the crime that they were convicted of, and since Brown confessed that he lied and corroborated Dusty's story, he was a good candidate. And we agree, Brown confessed that he lied, and then he said that Dusty's version of the events was the correct accounting of that night. Dusty's appeals had run out, but the verdict was reached based on untrue statements. In April 2008, a circuit court judge held a hearing, and then in May, he gave his ruling. He felt that Billy Brown was credible and his statements were correct. He declared that Dusty's sentence be vacated and he should be released. However, the attorney general filed a petition against this ruling and asked that the appellate court look into the ruling. Ten months later, the appellate court held their hearing. Two of the three judges sided with the circuit court judge's ruling and declared that Dusty is to be released. Dusty and his family were sure that he would be getting out. He even started giving away his possessions in prison, preparing for his imminent release. We went and we had our court day, and uh, Billy Brown was found, his confession was found credible, and the judge declared that Dusty was innocent. And he vacated his sentence. And you're sure right there, you're, it's justice. At last, there's justice for you and your family. And, and for me, oh, my God, I was just oh, cloud nine. Not even, uh, <laughs> I had celebrations going on we were we were all jubilant we were jumping up and down for joy i had everyone let's let's get together and i want to buy everybody champagne that was my first thought so we all met uh, at some really nice restaurant and i had the champagne flowing i told the waitresses don't stop just keep keep it going i've got credit cards (laughs) and then also bought the dinner for everyone and uh you know it felt like it was all happening everything was going to be great and then two days later, it's all pulled out from under you because somebody appeals it. And that's been going on back and forth now for all these years. 
The Attorney General appealed the decision and held a new hearing with the full appellate court. These hearings take time and the courts are dragging their feet, so Dusty sat in prison and waited. It was decided by the full appellate court to overturn the previous ruling in 2012. This meant that Dusty's sentence was no longer going to be vacated and that he was to stay in prison. That decision was also appealed and taken up to the Virginia Supreme Court, who in a devastating blow to Dusty and his family upheld the ruling in 2011. Once again, Dusty's only chance at freedom was to be granted a pardon from the governor. Since 2011, the fight for Dusty's freedom has not slowed. The options are limited to, one, a pardon from the governor. Action has been focused on putting pressure on the current governor, Terry McAuliffe, to grant Dusty a pardon before he leaves office in January of 2018. We had the chance to speak with the person responsible for making the Target of Opportunity documentary that details Jennifer's murder and Dusty's case. The actual purpose of the documentary evolved as he learned more about the case, and we had the chance to discuss this on a Skype call. What started out as a look into a crime involving two Navy SEALs turned into a project aimed at getting a wrongfully convicted man out of prison. When this crime occurred, I was attached to a SEAL team. And so when it happened, it was a big deal inside of the the command. And everybody was so upset. And and kind of the cover became, oh, well, they weren't SEALs. Uh, A real SEAL would never do that. But they were within weeks of putting on their tridents, and they had orders to go uh, overseas. I mean, I didn't know them at the time. I was at the Naval Special Warfare Development Group, which is a kind of high-end testing facility. And so I just thought of the guys that I worked with and how hard, how much planning is involved in everything that they do and, and how, uh, organized and, uh, just the, the, you know, execution checklist and all these things we go through to make sure that everything's in the, the, you know, they're training on how to train, you know, it's just this high level of, uh, of, uh, professionalism. And it just didn't make any sense to me that you guys, uh, it didn't match the, the the profile, and also if two seals wanted to do this sort of thing, abduct people and and kill them, I don't know if there's anybody in the world better trained to do that uh, and not get caught. So the whole thing just didn't smell right. But obviously, I was in the military and we couldn't really do anything about it. I just uh, read about it, and and I planned on uh, making documentaries when I finished my that career, and um, uh, this ended up being the first one that I started looking into. And within a few phone calls, and the reaction that I was getting from the police and the prosecutors that didn't add up, and how badly they didn't want me to dig into this, and then of course I went, I found out about Brown confessing inside of the prison system and telling people. Uh, in fact, I found somebody that he confessed to in 1996 and then uh, uh, a cellmate of his that had no reason, no, you know, it's not like it was off of a, like he was talking to me, wasn't going to get him anywhere in a court system or any sort of the, you know, the uh, jailbird thing of, of getting somebody to talk. Uh, it, it was completely different than that. And I believed the kid. Um, and, and since then, other people have contacted me and told me that that he had confessed to them way, way back. So 
Um, yeah, once I started looking into it, it became pretty obvious what really went down, and it made a lot more sense to me. When I called and said, uh, I talked to one of the detectives from the case, Detective Orr, had told me that he was going to go interview Brown because he was not sure, you know, that Brown's story sounded too much like Turner's and that, you know, it just didn't seem uh, there should have been more differences. So I waited months and then and then I called him back and said, hey, what happened with it? He goes, well, the prosecutor told me I couldn't go. So I called the prosecutor, the Commonwealth's attorney, uh, that was different than the original Commonwealth's attorney, and he told me he'd never talked to or about the Turner case or anything about that. So either he was lying to one of them's lying to me, or when he said I would uh, talk to the Commonwealth's attorney, he was actually talking about Robert Humphreys, the former uh, prosecutor that is now a judge on the appellate court. And I, I, I'm not saying that's what happened, but that's why connected those dots and said, oh, well, if he's talking to, maybe he meant him, which would be its own set of problems. But they've been very uncooperative. And the public affairs office basically told me that they had a meeting and they decided that nobody was going to talk to me. Then that started me down this path of peeling back the onion. But I'm afraid, see, everybody thinks this is the outlier, but I'm afraid that this happens every day. Um, I'm afraid that because our incentives are set up for prosecutors to become judges by executing more people, convicting more people, uh, that gets them reelected. Nobody, nobody ever goes to the ballot box and says, man, my guy let more innocent people off the hook than, than anybody ever. That's just not what their job is, that, that how they look at it. It should be, there should be some way that, these wrongful convictions get, uh, you know, neutral people to look at it. And then, you know, I think that's what the bar is supposed to do, but they just don't seem to, to uh, really do it with prosecutors. And then that's how they become judges. If you're interested in watching the documentary, and we really recommend it, you can find The Target of Opportunity, The U.S. Navy Seals, and The Murder of Jennifer Evans on Vimeo. I've seen it probably three times, and I'm yeah. still picking up on little details that I didn't see the last time. And in addition to JD, we also spoke with Lisa. Lisa helps run the free Dusty Turner social media. We actually heard of Dusty's case through our podcast Instagram. And before that, I'd, I'd never heard of Dusty's case. Mm. And after learning more about it, I was floored that this wasn't a bigger story. Right. Lisa spoke with us to discuss how and why she got involved and what we can do to help. And she also filled us in on what actions Free Dusty Turner is taking now. I heard about Dusty's case last fall and reached out to his family uh, to see if there were some ways that I could help um, raise awareness about his case. And that's what I've been doing for the last six months. You run like the social media and all of those aspects of it, right? Right. Yeah. I maintain the Twitter and Instagram and Facebook uh, posts as well. And then you were kind of the one that started that, right? Like they didn't have a lot of like a big Twitter or Instagram presence before that. Yeah. The other cases that I followed, the other wrongful conviction cases that I followed, they have had uh, more of a social media presence. And that's how I kind of follow them, the updates and stuff of their case. So I thought that uh, starting those accounts for Dusty's would help 
raise awareness so more people would watch that the documentary about his case and also you know do simple little things that anybody can do to help support and raise awareness for him what motivated you to get involved so my brother is in the air force and i have a cousin that's in the army and so i definitely think the military aspect of this case uh really struck a chord with me Dusty, you know, was the youngest SEAL trainee in his training class, and he grew up in a Midwestern family with strong family values, uh, sort of similar to myself. It just was very difficult to picture him in the position that he's in, having spent nearly 22 years in prison, and not try to do something to help, even if it is just getting his story out there more so people understand what's what really can happen in our criminal justice system. And how do you think that you've seen, you know, that his social media presence grow since you've been involved? Well, it's definitely been a process as far as, you know, gaining followers and stuff like that. Really, I, I was very lucky because I had a lot to work with because of Doug Leet's documentary on Dusty's case. And so that really gave me kind of a head start in um, having something that people can watch and see exactly what occurred in his case. And then, you know, I just try to use different things from Dusty directly or from his family or things that he's done since he's been in prison that show his character and what kind of a person he is to kind of have people relate to him as a human being and not somebody that's just a prisoner behind bars. And can you met him recently. Do you want to tell us just a little bit about how that was? It was kind of a deja vu encounter because the way that he is on the documentary, he's exactly the same in person. And so it's kind of a, was a kind of a surreal meeting or whatever um, just because it, it, he is exactly like he comes off on tape. It wasn't editing or anything like that in the documentary. To be honest, I wasn't, I didn't really want to like him as a person uh, just because that makes it harder. Like, you know, you take things more personal and you want to be able to do more and all of that. But I, I do, I really, I really like him as a person and I really respect him. And, you know, that has obviously motivated me to want to, do as much as I possibly can to help. And then what action can listeners take? So as far as what actions everybody could take, um, you can watch the documentary to learn uh, about the case. Um, the documentary is called Target of Opportunity, the U.S. Navy Seals and the Murder of Jennifer Evans. It's available on Amazon Prime, iTunes, and Vimeo. We have accounts on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. So you can like or join those pages and show support there. Even if it's just sharing a couple posts here and there, that makes a big difference because, you know, every new person that learns about the case it is a potential supporter and could help in that way. There are two petitions that we have online, one on moveon.org and one at change.org that people can sign to request that Governor McAuliffe grant a conditional pardon for Dusty. We have the t-shirts that we're selling. And then just basically what, what I ask everybody to do is to share the documentary and the petition petitions with one family member or friend that you think might be interested in 
in his story in the case, and then we can kind of grow it from there, you know. Dusty copes with the intensely difficult situation he has been put in by taking it one day at a time and to keep just moving forward. During his stay in prison, he has made the best of his time there. He has taken classes through Indiana State University. When he ran out of his savings and was unable to continue with his education, he headed to the prison library and continued through self-teaching. Dusty also tutored other inmates who are working towards their GED. He has also developed and submitted several proposals to the Virginia Department of Corrections to improve inmates' quality of life. Some that have been implemented are a recycling program and the Bandits Adoption and Rescue Canines program where inmates foster and train dogs for adoption. Linda actually adopted a dog named Sasha in 2014. Because of his exceptional behavior, leadership, and positive attitude during the time he's been incarcerated, Dusty has been given the opportunity to live in the, quote, honor pods. The prisons in Virginia dedicate one section of a building to house inmates like Dusty who have exhibited good behavior. Typically, space is reserved in an honor pod for about 10% of the inmate population. Members of the honor pod have fewer restrictions imposed on them. They are given special privileges. Like, for example, they are permitted to move freely inside the honor pod, and they are provided more private areas to meet with their visitors and things like that. If he is released, he wants to move home to Indiana. He hopes he'll be able to pursue his BA in Northern European history and make up for lost time with his family. His stepfather, Larry, who had been in his life since he was two years old, passed away in 2012. As of 2015, Dusty has spent more of his life in prison than he's spent out of prison. So our initial thoughts on this case, it's its so incredibly infuriating. Mm. Anytime I would read about it for too long, I would feel like I needed to like lay down I know. afterwards. <laughs> Just because it kind of like makes your head spin a it little. Does. This is the prime example of a kid who made a mistake. He paid his time for the crime that he was guilty of, and that's accessory after the fact. That in and of itself would carry a prison sentence that's a fraction of what he's already served. And he was put in prison because of the lies that Billy Brown told. And then Brown himself said that he told those lies because he felt betrayed and he was angry with Dusty for coming clean. Yeah. You know, I've, like you, just, I've thought about this case a lot. I have thought about what I would do in the same situation. I mean, just imagine if you or Emily, Nicole, I mean, these are people very close to me, snap someone's neck in front of me. Even to this day, I would probably do the same thing at first I think it's hard for people to admit that to themselves like you because you really want to think you're going to do what's best but just think about your best friend because that's kind of as a civilian that's the only way I can kind of put myself in that position Um, I imagine a swim buddy is probably a deeper bond maybe different bond than a than a friend but just you know of course I'm not in the military so I got to put it in my perspective and imagining my best friend in the world or my wife or and just think about that way and they they did that in front of you just witnessed a murder and your friend did it I mean it's just in the heat of the moment yeah you'd probably like okay drive cover it up you know and then later you think about it and that's exactly what he did I just you know I think most people would do the same and in Dusty's case I really I think it really does show his training. He had to ask his superior what to do. And I think that just shows the conditioning from the military training. What do I do? What do I do? I'm supposed to protect this guy. He had to ask a superior officer, is it okay to, to come clean? I mean, and that just shows you he was A, torn, and B, he had to get permission. And that's military training for you, right? He's, he's going against the grain and wanted to make sure it was okay. 
in the end, he did the right thing, and he's more than paid for his crime. Brown has come forward. He told the truth. And it's the same story Dusty's been saying for years and years and years. He needs to be out of prison. This just isn't justice for me, and it gets me a little riled up, clearly. Yeah, and as for the justice system, I think that it's failed on every level. Mm -hmm. Any actions that took place after Billy Brown confessed and corroborated Dusty's story were taken to protect the reputation of the Virginia criminal justice system. And that's not really in the interest of pursuing justice for Dusty or even more important for Jennifer. Mm -hmm. Dusty was convicted on lies, plain and simple, and the guy who made up these lies admitted it. So why is Dusty still in a jail cell? You know, it's funny. We've done quite a few cases in Virginia, and it seems like they don't like to admit mistakes. <laughs> if I was a prosecutor or a judge and an innocent man was behind bars because of something I did, I would like to think I would do whatever it took to make it right. This is a man's life, a woman's son, someone's brother. He's been forthright this entire time and finally vindicated by the actual perpetrator of the crime. And it's, how does the decision to keep him in jail just defies that decision defies all logic to me. I think the Commonwealth is basically covering their ass. Put it plainly. <laughs> to put it mildly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I yeah, I think a lot of places don't like to. A lot of prosecutors, et cetera, might not want to backtrack on maybe their convictions. Sure, which is but, insane to me. But this is a case where it's like, geez, I don't know how you can sleep at night. Right. And as outraged as Eileen and I are about the case. It's so cool to see other people feel the same way. Mm -hmm. You know, J.D. and Lisa are both people who happened to cross the case, and then they were motivated to help in ways beyond even we were. I mean, they dedicate a good portion of their time mm -hmm. and life to trying to help Dusty. And yeah. That in and of itself, I think, shows how much this case is speaking to people. I know. I am so impressed, and I'm touched Like when I see people like J.D. and Lisa get involved. They put so much of themselves into helping Dusty. It just, I don't know, gives me hope in the world, as silly as that may sound. And I don't know. I, I, I'm sure the family and, and Dusty feel the same about J.D. and Lisa and people that help. Dusty seems like one of the most earnest people in the world. Um, he's kept an amazing attitude. I cannot even fathom what it would be like in his situation. Yet he pushes on and, you know, takes it day by day. And I... I can't imagine Linda, what she goes through, what she's gone through. She continues to fight for her son, and she's just struck me as one of the most amazing women I've ever met. And I really hope one day we can all meet J.D., Lisa, Linda, and Dusty in person, and preferably outside the walls of a prison. Yeah, I think I think Dusty's a brave person, a different person, even me, would not handle the situation yeah. that he's in the way that he does. I would... Wouldn't blame him for becoming angry or jaded, mm -hmm. but he just stays focused on his release. And Linda has worked tirelessly for the release of her son and will continue to do so as long as he's incarcerated. We talked to her for over two hours, but it went by so fast. It felt like 15 minutes. She's been put through so much, but during the whole conversation, you can just tell she won't ever give up until her son gets justice. And I will say that Linda is one of the strongest people I think I've ever met. She's faced such heartbreak and been given hope just to have mm -hmm. it snatched away and watched her son spend over half his life inside of a prison. And despite all of that, she picks herself up and she dusts herself off and carries on. I don't know where she finds the strength or the wherewithal to do that. And Dusty is just one of thousands of people who've been wrongfully convicted. And in my opinion, every day a wrongfully convicted person remains in prison as a day our criminal justice system is failing us. Yep. It's tearing families apart. 
People are missing milestones with their loved ones. Their family members are passing away while they're waiting for the criminal justice system to slowly grind forward. Yeah. And despite all of this, there are people out here who remain hopeful and remain active, but they need our support. So if you were touched by this case like we were, we want you to contact Governor McAuliffe's office and urge him to pardon Dusty. We'll list his contact information on our website. I know we've listed it for William Orvis' case and Yvonne Telugu's case, but we'll list it again. And he leaves office in January 2018, and he's been hearing from us for a couple of months. (laughs) And he's going to keep hearing from us until his term is up. Yep. There's also a petition that we'll link on Twitter that you can sign a change.org petition. And then before we wrap things up, I just want to say my heart goes out to Jennifer's family. Yeah. I can't imagine what they went through. And she's the ultimate victim in this senseless act of violence. Yeah. She did, you know, nothing wrong. All she's wrong place, wrong time, wrong person, came across the wrong person. Billy Brown. Yeah. And she paid the ultimate price. Yeah. Well, that wraps us up for another episode of Misconduct. Thank you so much for joining us. Head over to our Facebook group to discuss this week's case. If you're not already a member, join and one of our mods will add you ASAP. We love hearing your thoughts and opinions on all the cases. So hop on over and let us know what you think of today's case. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at MisconductPod. We also want to give a huge shout out to the Blank Tapes for our intro and outro music. Be sure to check them out on Bandcamp to listen to more of their stuff. If you have a case suggestion, let us know about it. You can email us at misconductpodcast at gmail.com. We will see you guys next week. sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.